Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. From KQED. This is the California Report. Good morning. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. We have lots of COVID-related news for you today because of the spread of the Delta variant. Following in the footsteps of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, California public health officials are recommending that everyone wear masks indoors, regardless of their vaccination status. In a statement, the state's Department of Public Health says that because of the highly contagious variant, hospitalizations are on the rise across the state, and wearing a mask indoors can help slow the spread of COVID-19. This comes a day after the CDC recommended indoor masking in communities where transmission of the virus is considered significant or high. That would have included more than 90% of California's population. Several cities and counties in California had already implemented their own masking indoor rules and recommendations. And Google will require its employees who return to the company's offices to be vaccinated. The Mountain View-based tech giant is also pushing back its official return to the office date for employees from September to mid-October. KQED's Rachel Myro has more from our Silicon Valley desk. The spread of the Delta variant has sparked a number of Silicon Valley firms to reassess plans to bring more staff back to brick-and-mortar offices by summer's end. In an internal note to employees, Google CEO Sundar Pichai wrote the vaccine mandate would apply to U.S. offices in the coming weeks, months for other parts of the world. Facebook told KQED it will also require anyone working at its U.S. campuses to be vaccinated. Intel is sticking to a face mask requirement until further notice. For the California Report, I'm Rachel Myro. And Twitter, which reopened its San Francisco and New York offices two weeks ago, has closed them down again because of the surge in new coronavirus cases. The company had required employees to show proof of vaccination before returning to the office. And Governor Gavin Newsom is facing pushback over his mandate that all state employees and healthcare workers either provide proof of vaccination from COVID or undergo regular testing for the virus. SEIU Local 1000 President Richard Lewis Brown tweeted that he has sent a letter to the State Department of Human Resources formally objecting to the mandate. It marks the first known union objection to the new rules, as several others have voiced their support this week. SEIU Local Local 1000 represents about 100,000 state employees. Brown took office last month and has frequently criticized the governor, particularly over pay cuts Newsom and the legislature demanded of state workers last year. For his part, the governor has said the vaccination mandate is well within his authority. With COVID-19 cases surging once again, conversations are intensifying around those who remain unvaccinated. But a Bay Area physician and community health advocate says the answer is not that simple. The California Report's Keith Mizuguchi spoke with Dr. Rhea Boyd, a pediatrician and public health advocate in the Bay Area. We first asked Dr. Boyd about some of the misconceptions about people who are unvaccinated. I think one of the major misconceptions is that Using a term like the unvaccinated describes a single kind of monolithic group of people, that everyone in that group is in that group for similar reasons, that most of those reasons are self-focused or selfish in nature or ideological. 
that the parts of the country that are in that group are well-known, that the age groups that are in that group are well-known. And it misses the enormous diversity that actually exists among folks who have yet to be vaccinated. We've heard President Biden say it. We've heard Governor Newsom say it, that this is now a pandemic for the unvaccinated. Does that just lead to further mistrust for those people who haven't gotten their shots yet? More than that, I think it isolates the unvaccinated outside of the purview of our societal concern. It says that you're in that group because you don't care or because you're being selfish. It ignores the fact that everyone under age 12 is in that group. It ignores the fact that even some folks who have gotten a vaccine may not have had the immune response that they need for full protection. Here I'm talking about folks who have serious immunocompromised conditions, right? Not everybody who is vaccinated is now just immune from being affected by the pandemic. And so what's wrong with that language is that it vilifies folks in a group for which some folks have no choice but to be in that group because they're not eligible yet based on their age for vaccination. And it makes it that much harder for us to acknowledge, even for folks who are vaccinated right now, that they also need to take precautions, that the pandemic doesn't just end because you got a vaccine. You've worked with community groups from across the country. Why are you hopeful that some of these people that haven't been vaccinated yet will finally decide to get their shots? What gives me hope is when we have these talks and these calls with folks in their community, in their church setting, we're able to hear people's vulnerability. We're able to hear the real reasons why they're actually worried or afraid or have legitimate concerns about their underlying medical conditions and whether or not they're a good candidate for the vaccine. Once we can hear those worries and concretely address them with them, people express to us that they are more interested in vaccination. So I feel hopeful because I know that from our experience, actually just sitting with people right where they are, answering their questions, being kind of open to their vulnerabilities, gives them space to say, okay, this does look like the right choice for me. And I think in a way that only makes sense, right? That what will work most for people is not just shouting from the rooftops that you should get vaccinated, but sometimes sitting quietly with somebody to say, hey, tell me what's still concerning you. And let me tell you why now is the most important moment to be vaccinated during this pandemic. Dr. Rhea Boyd is a pediatrician and public health advocate in the Bay Area. Dr. Boyd, thanks so much for your time this morning. Oh, of course. Thanks again for having me. Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone? hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years. Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles. The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them, with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. 
Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. L.A. City Council passed a sweeping ordinance yesterday that would restrict homeless encampments in many areas of the city, including near parks, schools, daycare facilities, libraries, and freeway bridges and off-ramps. Supporters say conditions in many encampments have become too squalid and dangerous, and that outreach teams would offer shelter options before encampment removals could begin. But critics argue the ordinance demonizes the homeless, and that L.A. simply doesn't have enough places to house people who are currently living on the streets. Before the council vote, sharply split public comments were taken over the phone about the ordinance. Stuart Waldman is with the local Chamber of Commerce. Families should be able to safely walk down any street in the city and not have to move into the roadway. And businesses should not have their storefronts blocked by trash and other belongings. This crisis has gone too far and too long and must be fixed. However, L.A. resident Richie Sergenko echoed the opposition of many homeless activists to the ordinance. You guys all want to criminalize, uh, you know, homelessness in Los Angeles, basically saying that poor people just existing will be criminalized. Um, This law unfairly paints unhoused people as a threat to children and the public. The lack of appropriate housing is the real threat to public safety. The ordinance now goes to Mayor Eric Garcetti, whose office says he plans on signing it. And staying on the topic of shelter, keeping someone housed may be among the best ways to prevent a serious COVID-19 infection or even death. That, according to a new UCLA study that looked at eviction moratoriums during the pandemic. With more, here's Benjamin Gottlieb from member station KCRW. Most states banned evictions at the beginning of the pandemic, but last summer, many renters across the country who lost their jobs or couldn't make payments were forced to move out when those protections expired. This new study from UCLA suggests evictions during the summer of 2020 actually led to hundreds of thousands more COVID-19 cases and more than 10,000 deaths. Preventing evictions during the COVID-19 pandemic should be part of our public health toolkit. That's Katherine Leifite. She's a researcher at the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. With vaccination rates flagging across the country, Leifite says housing remains a powerful protection against serious infection. Anything that we can do to keep people housed, as long as this virus is still circulating, is, is really important in terms of preventing illness and death. Now, there are some limitations to this study. Its authors acknowledge, for example, that some local eviction bans remained in place despite state moratoriums being lifted, and researchers just could not account for that data. Still, these findings come as the nation's current eviction and foreclosure protections are set to expire at the end of this month. California has a statewide eviction moratorium of its own. It's more robust, but that will expire too at the end of September, unless state lawmakers extend it. For the California Report, I'm Benjamin Gottlieb in Los Angeles. In San Diego County, tenant advocates say they will continue to fight against a plan to sell nearly 6,000 housing units to private equity firm Blackstone. As we hear from KPBS race and equity reporter Christina Kim, some who live in the housing now are worried they'll lose their homes. Anne-Marie McKellab has called the Golden Tree Apartments in National City home for the last three years. It's one of the 66 buildings the Conrad Priebus Foundation is selling to Blackstone for a total of more than $1 billion. She's worried what's going to happen when Blackstone takes over. I'm pretty much, I'm afraid that I got, we got to move on because they're not in favor of us. 
they're in favor of themselves and growing their money higher. In a statement to KPBS, Kathleen McCarthy, the global co-head of Blackstone Real Estate, wrote, We expect that a resident making 80 percent or less of AMI will continue to find the majority of units affordable. We plan to make substantial capital investments exceeding $100 million to address unaddressed resident requests. In San Diego County, 80 percent of AMI, or area median income for a family of four, is $97,000. National City Vice Mayor Jose Rodriguez says he's not confident that Blackstone will keep any promises it's making. And he's warning Blackstone that a strong tenants' rights culture is growing in the San Diego region. They're dealing with tenants that aren't organized, with elected officials that want to make sure that we represent everybody and everybody's interests, so that they know this is going to be a fight once the sale goes through. Blackstone Group expects the transaction to close later this year. For the California Report, I'm Christina Kim in San Diego. Fire crews will face more dry, hot weather today as they battle the massive Dixie Fire in Butte and Plumas counties. John Cook, a fire behavior analyst with CAL FIRE, spoke about some of the firefighting challenges at a briefing this morning. Spotting is going to be a big issue. It's been, we've talked about it, but these high, high temperatures just jack up that spotting potential. The winds go in different directions. Um, you know, that heat is a key component of the spotting and the, the ability of spots to start, establish, and move. So far, the Dixie Fire has burned more than 221,000 acres, making it the 13th largest wildfire in state history. More than 60 structures, including several homes in Plumas County, have been destroyed. Smoke from the blaze has led to unhealthy air quality in the areas surrounding the fire and as far as Sacramento, which is about 100 miles away. This week marks two years since the tragic Gilroy Garlic Festival shooting, and survivors are adding another defendant in a lawsuit they filed against the festival. KQED's Laura Clivens has more. The lawsuit now names Century Arms, which marketed and sold the semi-automatic rifle used in the shooting. It accuses the company of product liability, negligence, and public nuisance. Three people, including two children, were killed in the attack, and 17 were injured. Wendy Towner was one of them. No one talks about the aftermath of such a tragedy, the unrelenting years of trauma that will haunt you. I do have horrible wounds, countless surgeries. My husband and I have millions of dollars in medical bills. Those are the wounds you can see. Other defendants in the lawsuit include the city of Gilroy, the festival itself, and its security contractor. For The California Report, I'm Laura Clivens. And that is the California Report for Thursday, July 29th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks for listening and have a good day. Support for the California Report comes from California Healthcare Foundation, ensuring the voices of Californians are heard in California's decisions about health care on the web at chcf.org voices. Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food, on the web at theschmidt.org. And SF MoMA, presenting the exclusive U.S. exhibition of Nam June Beck, a visionary global artist who bridged art, music, performance, and technology. Learn more at sfmoma.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone? 
hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years. Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles. The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them, with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts.